One of the best ways we can learn what to pray for and how to pray is to read the prayers in your Bible. Just reading prayers in your Bible, and your Bible is full of them, is one of the best ways for you to learn how to pray, what to pray for, and how you should pray for it. You can read the Psalms full of prayers. You can learn how to pray. You can read our Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, or you can read the prayers of Paul like the one that we have before us today. As many of you know, Paul begins this letter to the Philippians in verses 1 and 2 with a formal greeting. And then verses 3 through 11 are a written prayer. And that's what we've been looking at these past few weeks. Verses 3 through 11 are Paul's written prayer. And this prayer of Paul is a template. Think of this prayer of Paul as a template. In other words, our prayers should sound like this. This is what we should pray for. And this is an example of how we should pray for it. This prayer of Paul is a template. Now, are you a wise man or a fool? Are you a sage or are you a fool? Don't answer that out loud. But I'm asking because Depending on your answer, you will go to work on this prayer very differently. This is what I mean. The fool, the fool hears this is a template for prayer and quickly starts rattling off weird, insincere mechanical, superficial copies of Paul's prayers. He is thankful, the fool is, for a template because it makes his life easier and more efficient and he doesn't have to think as much. The wise man hears this is a template for prayer and sits down. The wise man hears that this is a template for prayer and he reads the prayer again and he thinks about it and he understands what will need to change in his heart if he is ever going to authentically pray like this. So are you a wise man or a fool this morning? If you are a fool and you hear that this is a template for prayer, and it is, you will just start running off copies of this prayer, checking it off the list. It will not be sincere. It will be superficial. It will be mechanical. It will make people around you feel awkward. If you're a wise man, 
you will read this prayer, you will understand this prayer, and you will realize just how much needs to change deep inside your heart if you are ever going to be able to authentically pray like this. So this is a template for prayer. No doubt about it. Our prayers should sound like this. This is what we should pray for, and this is how we should pray for it. Therefore, what was important to Paul will have to be important to us. This prayer started in Paul's heart. Your prayers must start in your heart. So if we're going to pray like this, whatever was important to Paul must be important to us. These are the kinds of concerns that we should have. These are the kinds of desires that we should have. If we don't have these desires and these concerns, we just won't pray like this. At least not meaningfully. Not sincerely. Not authentically. So the task before us is to understand what Paul is praying for and then to examine our hearts in light of his. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. So would you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your word. Help us now to understand your word on a spiritual level. We ask that your word would do the work that it promises to when it is abiding in us, that your word would go from our ears and our minds down to the bottom of our hearts, and that our love for you would increase today, our knowledge of you would increase today, our discernment would increase today, we would become more pure and blameless and more godly, all to your glory and praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your iPhones to Philippians chapter 1. If you are using one of our old school paper Bibles, you will find that on page 636. If you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible with you. You can find it under a seat in front of you. Page 636. Paul is writing a letter to the church in Philippi. That's who the Philippians are. He's writing to a church. He's writing to a people that he deeply, deeply loves. A church that he helped establish 10 years before. And as he writes, he is in prison. He is awaiting trial. And he is writing to encourage the Philippians to continue to grow in Christ. He wants to see them grow up as Christians. He wants to see them mature spiritually. And he knows that that will be for their good or for their joy, and it will also result in the glory of God. So today, we're in verses 9 through 11, which you can see are the end of Paul's prayer. And it's a prayer, follow with your eyes, that began all the way up in verse chapter 3. You could break this prayer into two parts. Verses 3 through 8 
Paul expressed thanksgiving and joy and love for the Philippians, which, by the way, is a great way to begin your prayers and end your prayers with thanksgiving. And now in our verses today, verses 9 through 11, we have Paul's petition. This is what Paul is asking God for. This is what Paul is asking God to do. So the first part of his prayer, thank you, God. Expressing joy and love, thank you, God. And now, he comes before God and says, this is what I'm asking you for. This is what I'm asking you to do. I'm sure a lot of your prayers sound like that. You express thanksgiving and gratitude to God. And then you bring your petitions before God. You ask Him for things. You ask Him for help. You ask Him to do something. That's good and right. You should do that. So let's begin. Let's read the entire prayer together, verses 3 through 11, so we understand the context. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So that was the expression of his thanksgiving, joy, and love. And now here is what he is asking God for. Verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So there are different ways that we could examine this prayer of Paul, but I'm going to pull it apart by pointing out that Paul is asking for four things. Paul is asking for four things. Number one, abounding love. Number two, increasing knowledge and discernment number three a pure and blameless life and number four the glory and praise of God those are four things that Paul is asking God to do four things that Paul is asking God for number one abounding love number two increasing knowledge and discernment Number three, a pure and blameless life. And number four, the glory and praise of God. So let's start at the beginning, where Paul is asking God for, number one, abounding love. Look at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now, wait, I thought this church was already a church of love. And it is. This church that 
Paul is writing to in Philippi is maybe the most, you could make a case, is maybe the most loving church that Paul knows of. He commends them. He commends them for their love. And yet, he prays for more and more. He prays for overflowing love. He is praying for a flood of love to be poured out from these people. Now, what does that mean for us if this is if this was a church that was renowned for their love? Notice that Paul does not mention an object of this love. Did you catch that? What are they supposed to love? Who are they supposed to love? He doesn't pray that their love for God would abound or that their love for Christ would abound or that their love for the world or for one another would abound. Why not? Which is it? Yes. It's all of the above. It's all of the above. When Paul is praying that their love would abound more and more, this is, I believe, Paul's overarching prayer. It's probably why he says it first. When he prays for more love in these Christians, it's his overarching prayer. Everything else, if you look, everything else, and hopefully you'll see today, everything else in these verses fits under the umbrella of abounding love. So there is a sense in which if they get that right, if, if their love is increasing, if they continue to grow in love, there is a sense in which all these other things are going to happen. It's that crucial. It's that important. Listen, there is nothing more significant at the heart of the Christian life than love. I don't know what you think at its essence the Christian life is or what the Christian life looks like or what you've been told or what you've been taught or what you've seen modeled for you. But you cannot walk away from the Bible and think that there is anything more significant at the heart of the Christian life than love. Now think about this. This is why when Jesus by his disciples was asked what the greatest commandment was, he did not hesitate to say, love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Which covers everything. It covers everyone. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love is at the heart of the Christian life. What is love? What, is, what does love look like? Love gives itself up. Love is self-abandonment. 
Love is sacrificing for others. Picture love like this. Love is born deep in your heart. Think of affection. Love is born deep in your heart. And then it starts going out, away from you, and it never looks back. That's love. It starts deep in your heart, and then immediately it starts going out and going out, and it never looks back. It is not selfish. It is not self-more. It is selfless. It is a deep affection for God and others that results in selfless action. It's not just I love you. It's not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. It's not just sentiment. It results in selfless action. It is the opposite of lust. Lust takes from someone else. Love gives to someone else. We are by nature good lusters. We are not by nature good lovers. We need to learn how to do this. We need someone like Paul praying that we would grow in this and abound in this. Listen to how how Paul, just later in this letter, will describe this love. If you want, you can look ahead. It's in the next chapter, 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And here's what the love looks like. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul's overarching prayer, his first prayer, is for abounding love. Do you have room to grow in love? What is Paul's prayer? He does not say, increase their love until. There is no until. Abounding, he says, more and more, he says. You can never grow enough in love. Not one of you could stand up today and say that every action, even in this last week, was always in the interest of others. There was always considering others above yourself. That every motive you had, that every agenda you had was to sacrifice yourself, was to give yourself up for the good of others and not your own good. We can't go weeks like that. Some of us can't go minutes like that. We're constantly bending everything back on ourselves for for our comfort, for our affirmation, for our value, for our praise. And love, remember, love goes out from you and it never, ever looks back. If it's looking back, taking care of me and taking care of my 
my desires and my agendas and my goals and my priorities and my motives, if it's about me, it's not about love. So even for this loving church, his first and overarching prayer is that they would abound in love. So he prays for this. It has to be generated in the heart of a Christian by God. Galatians 6 puts it this way. It is the first fruit of the Holy Spirit, Paul mentions. It's not just going to show up. We must ask God for this. Number two, Paul prays for increasing knowledge and discernment. As we continue to read verse 9, we pick this up. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. First, I want you to notice this little word, with. Or some of your Bibles might have the word, in. Paul is praying that their love may abound with. With knowledge and discernment. So, what does that mean? That means that knowledge and discernment and love are growing together. Praying that your love may abound more and more with also abounding, increasing knowledge and discernment. That's what Paul is praying for. These qualities, love and knowledge and discernment, they are not independent of one another. They grow together. So we've looked at love. What is this knowledge and discernment? First, let's look at knowledge. Paul prays that the Philippians would not only abound in love, but in knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing. He wants them to know things. He wants their knowledge to increase. He wants their minds to fill with truth. He wants them to gain understanding. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Every Christian is a theologian. Every Christian believes certain things about God. Every Christian is either a bad theologian or a good theologian, or an immature theologian, or a mature theologian. But you can't hear anything about God and draw any conclusions about God without becoming a theologian, which just means the study of God. And that is no small thing. It is a good thing. It is good that your mind would fill with knowledge, that you would increase in the truth. But it is deeper than that. We've got to hold these all together. This kind of knowledge that Paul wants for the Philippians and for us, it's not only a mind knowledge, it's a heart knowledge. But it is a mind knowledge. He does want them to know stuff. You do need to know things and what the Word of God has to say. And you can't ever stop knowing those things. You want to grow in that. But it's not just for our mind. It's a heart knowledge. It's not 
just knowing about God, it's knowing God. It's not just knowing about God, it is the kind of knowledge that knows God personally. It is one thing, and it's a good thing, to mark the right answers on the theology test. That is a good thing, and we shouldn't marginalize that. It is a good thing to mark the right answers on the theology exam. But it is quite another thing to have those right answers make their mark on you. That's something more. It's one thing to know the truth. Does it change you? Does it transform you? Does it renew you? Does it make you think differently? Does it make you love differently? Does it make you look at yourself, look at others, look at God, look at your life differently? Theology is for life. Bring these two together. Knowledge is for love. They're growing together. What about discernment? This word for discernment here, it refers to things like good judgment or discretion or wisdom, which is the ability to apply knowledge. Discernment is like x-ray vision. Think of discernment that way. Discernment is like x-ray vision. It sees beyond the cover of the book. It sees beyond the veneer of the furniture. It sees beyond the facade or the mask. It looks beneath the surface and it is able to make good judgment. And Lack of, lack of discernment among Christians is fairly rampant. Sometimes the love is not where it needs to be. Sometimes the knowledge is not where it needs to be. And sometimes the discernment is not where it needs to be. What is Paul's prayer? That we would abound in discernment. One of the questions, remember, we have to be asking ourselves as we read this template of prayer is, do I pray like this? Are these my concerns? Are these my desires? Is this what I want? Is this what I want in my life and in the life of those that I love to abound in love, to abound in knowledge and here to abound in discernment? Are we able to discern what is really good and what is really right? Are we able to discern what really and truly pleases God? Or do we just take everything's word for it? If the book says it's good, it's a good book. If someone says it's good, it's a good book. If the entertainment is good to some, we assume the entertainment is good for us. If that use of media is good for some, it must be good for us. This bit of knowledge, this philosophy, this idea, this relationship. Do we think with knowledge and love? Are we discerning to know with that x-ray vision 
what the substance of something really is. Now, if we are weak in this area, and many of us should just admit we are weak in this area, it can be embarrassing to admit that, but there should be no shame in admitting that. I'm weak when it comes to discernment. I don't discern people well. I don't discern ideas well and philosophies well and books well and media well and entertainment well. If you're weak here, you ought to pray for it. You ought to tell others that you're weak here. Why? So they can pray for you the way Paul is praying for the Philippians. If you are lacking discernment and you recognize that, then you should constantly be seeking the counsel of others who don't lack discernment. Seek their counsel. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? This is why we preach the Word of God. This is why we will have classes. This is why we will have libraries full of books. It is to help one another. It is to help one another know. It is to help one another discern. Ultimately, it's to help one another love. So we need that help. Paul is praying that the Philippians would abound in knowledge, in love, and in discernment. He is praying that the Philippians would increase in affection and understanding and wisdom. So we must be growing in all three. Which one or which ones do you lack in? Is it love? Is it knowledge? Is it discernment? Is it all three? Many of us will tend to be imbalanced, right? And we will have strengths and weaknesses. And we will tend to excel in this area and not in this area. What's the prayer? Oh God, help me to abound in all three. To abound in love to abound in knowledge, to abound in discernment. Okay, that's verse 9. Now, if you look at the beginning of verse 10, you'll see the two words, so that, or that. That means that verse 10 is, Lord willing, going to be the result of verse 9. That's what those words mean. Paul is praying, God, do Verse 9, which we just talked about, do verse 9 in the Philippians so that verse 10 will happen. So increase the love and the knowledge and the discernment so that verse 10 will happen. And the result we find in verse 10 is what? A pure and blameless life. Number three, a pure and blameless life. Let's read 9 and 10 together. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Let's break this result down. There's three parts or three results. 
three results so that they'll be ready. Look at the end of verse 10 for the day of Christ. This is the kind of life that is ready for the return of Christ. Which you want to be ready for. You want that day to be a good day. You want to be able to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you don't want him to return quickly, why not? Sometimes we do not want him to return quickly because we're in trouble. And we know it. And we don't want to get caught in the middle of it. Wait five years. I think I'll be more mature in five years. I think I'll be through this in five years. This is the kind of life we want to live now so that we are ready for the day of Christ. So three results. Number one, I'll just quote what he says. So that you may approve what is excellent. Okay, here's what that discernment is for. If you don't have that discernment, you can't do this. So that you may approve what is excellent. So grow in love and knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Or let me say that a different way. Choose what is best. That's the goal. That's the goal. That's what Paul is praying for. That we would be grown by God in such a way that we are the kind of people who choose what is best. Not just good, not just better. That's how it can increase. But what is best? You've got options before you. You've got choices you make. You're a decision-making machine every day. Every day, you're choosing what to say. You're choosing what to do. You're choosing what to listen to, what to watch, where to drive, where to go. Every day is filled with decisions. Paul is praying that we would be the kind of Christians who are more and more able to choose what is best. Secondly, the word he uses is pure This word pure actually means sincere. The word means sincere. If you have a King James Version or a New King James Version or a New American Standard, that's the word you have. It means sincere. So what does sincere mean? You mean what you say. You mean what you say. That's sincerity. You know people like this. This is something that you admire in people. Some of you know this person. They, they don't have a sarcastic bone in their body. Maybe at first they would say things to you and you thought, they've got, they've got to be being sarcastic right now. And then you came to realize they are so sincere. They, they mean what they're saying to you. That's what sincerity is. It means that you are the same person Sunday morning that you are on Saturday night. You're sincere. 
It means when you come here and say, I'm a Christian, you mean it. When you come here and say, I love Jesus, you mean it. When you come here and say, I want to be like him, you mean it. When you come here and say, I love you, you mean it. And you're not someone different on Saturday night. Who you are at church is who you are at home. Now let that sink in and think about that. I don't know when it comes to this purity and this sincerity if there's anything better that could be said about you than for those whom you live with to say he, she is the same person at home that they are at church. Integrity. We're talking about integrity. There's no secrets. There's no hidden life. Who you are is who you are. Sincerity. The word literally means to be tested by the light. And often the way this word was used in antiquity is to describe what somebody was looking for if they were to buy a piece of pottery And if they were to buy this piece of pottery or considering buying this piece of pottery or this clay pot and they were in a dark room before they paid any money, what were they going to do with that? They were going to drag it out into the light. And they were going to see if it was pure, to see if it was sincere. They were going to test it by the light and they were going to hold it up and see, are there any cracks in this pot that you couldn't see in the dark? But when you get out in the light, you see it for what it really is. Well, who are you today? Who are you? Really, who are you? Are you content with the answer? Are you sincere? Are you pure? And number three, he says blameless. And this word literally means not to stumble. It means not to stumble. You're not stumbling. And therefore, you're not leading others to stumble. This word blameless really has to do with being good for others. You're good for others. You're not bad for others. You're good. Your life and the way you live because you're sincere and there's no hidden cracks. There's no secret life. There's no hidden agenda. That means you're good for others. People can look at your life and they are encouraged in their relationship with Christ. They're encouraged in their walk with Christ by just looking at your life and what you model. You're blameless. This is why an elder or a pastor, when you look at some of the very first qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, he must be a man who is what? blameless so that he's good for others if we're not sincere if we're not the same on sunday morning as we are on saturday night think about it this way you are not good for other people you are not good for them because here's what we do as human beings we look at hypocrites we say we don't like hypocrites but we love hypocrites we love hypocrites because they make us feel better about ourselves 
And sinfully, we love to see a brother stumble. We love to see a sister stumble because it secretly makes us feel better about ourselves. At least I'm not doing that. At least I'm not that. And you're causing people to stumble. But we should be the kind of people who are blameless not to stumble. People are challenged by our life. They're encouraged by our life and not encouraged in their own hidden sin. Now, if you put these things together, the good choices, the sincere and blameless life, I mean, all you have is a godly life. Isn't that what Paul is praying for? I mean, these are the ingredients of a godly life. Paul is praying that the Philippians would be godly. Okay, we have one more verse, verse 11. And then Paul has concluded his prayer. So let's read all these verses together again. Beginning in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's break down verse 11. Filled, he says, with the fruit of righteousness, which is a sort of summary, I think. It is another way of describing the person who is abounding in love and knowledge and discernment and who is making good choices and is pure and blameless, they are filled with the fruit of righteousness. And then Paul says, and this is very important, and again, it is, it is why he is praying to God for all this. Remember, Paul is praying. Paul is not writing to the Philippians saying, hey, abound in love, increase in knowledge, get more discernment, be sincere, be blameless. That's not what this letter is. I mean, he's challenging them, but that's not what we have here. Paul is praying for these things. Why? Again, why is Paul praying to God for all this? Because where does this godly life come from, ultimately? He doesn't just send them a how-to book. He doesn't say, let me get you some more tools in your godliness toolbox. He doesn't give them five steps to this or four steps to that. I mean, ultimately... He's praying because he understands where this kind of godly life comes from. He knows where this fruit will come from. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So how will I do this? How will I abound in love? How? How will 
I live a life that is increasing in the ways it needs to increase? How, how will I be the kind of life that is like a tree that bears this beautiful fruit that is good for others and pleasing to God? How will I do this? That sounds impossible. That sounds impossible because it is impossible. God doesn't ask you to ever do anything but that which is impossible. So how will I pull this off? There's a couple of clues. Think about it. Paul is asking God for it. He's not asking the Philippians for it. This godly life comes from God. And then here we learn in verse 11, it comes through Jesus Christ. This kind of life that Paul is praying for, friends, it comes from God and it comes through Jesus Christ and there is no other way. None of this, not a, not a word of this is possible apart from Christ. Do you know Christ? Do you know God? You cannot increase in this heart knowledge of God unless you know God. Do you love God? And all I'm asking you to do right now is to really stop and think and not be too quick to answer. We can be so quick to answer. We've been doing it, some of you, since Sunday school. We know the right answer to the questions. Maybe along the line, someone even told you not to ask yourself these kinds of questions. I remember being told not to ask myself these kinds of questions. Don't examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Look at the verse that tells me to do that. Don't do that. Don't try and make your calling and election sure. But Peter says, no, don't do that. Don't have, you're just going to make yourself worried. You're going to get anxious. You're going to start doubting. You'll be depressed. You're not going to love God anymore. I guess you're right. That makes sense. I'm not going to do that. And so we kind of program ourselves to give the quick Christian answers. Do you believe the gospel? Of course I believe the gospel. Do you love God? Of course I love God. Do you want to please God? Of course I want to please God. Just stop for a minute. Just stop for a minute and think. Or do you really love God? Are you in Christ? If this kind of life comes from God and it's through Christ, then you need to know God and you need to be in Christ. Do you know God? Are you in Christ? When you look at your life, when you look at the fruit of your life, when you examine your thoughts and you examine your words and you examine your deeds, maybe ask it this way. Do you look like a Christian? Do you talk like a Christian? Do you think like a Christian? If you just answered no, why are you saying, yes, you're a Christian? 
I think that's the most loving thing that I could say to you right now. I wouldn't want you to go on thinking you know Christ and thinking you're in Christ if you're not. That would be an awful thing to do. If I told all of you that I loved my wife and I loved my children and then all week I was gone doing my own thing and when I was home I spoke harshly to them and ignored them, there'd come a point, wouldn't there? Where if you had some guts, you'd look me in the eye and you'd say, you don't love your wife. And you don't love your kids. And you'd say, well, no, 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 I do. And you can't judge that and in my heart. And if you only knew how I feel about them, and you'd say, no, stop, stop. You know a tree by its fruit. That's red letters. And if the fruit is bad, maybe the tree is bad. Places we don't want to go. Places we don't want to go. Ignorance is bliss. Don't want to think about this. Oh, please think about it. Please consider it. This is way too important to gloss over. And then finally, the end of Paul's prayer. All this... He's praying for all this. He's concerned about all this. And if you, if you read, his prayer has been building, right? I'm, I'm praying that you would abound in this and this and this and that that would result in this. And now here it is, that, and that all of that would result in this. What is the ultimate, ultimate goal? Number four, the glory and praise of God. Let's read it all together one last time and hear that ultimate goal built up to. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul prays for spiritual maturity, for growth, for love, ultimately, ultimately, so that God will receive glory and praise. Do we know that the glory and praise of God is the end of all things. Do we know that the glory and praise of God is the ultimate goal of all things? The glory of God is the trajectory of everything. Everything. Everything in the universe is moving toward the glory of God. All things ultimately will display the glory of God. We have to grasp this. 
When you grasp this, God gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and I get smaller and smaller and smaller. It looks like I'm going to disappear. He's getting so big and so great and so glorious. And that is the point. It is not Paul's prayer. It is not about the Philippians primarily. It is not about you primarily. It is about God. You are not at the center. God is. We are not at the center God is. Why do we exist to glorify God? God does not exist for you and me. We exist for God. Why does everything exist? Why does anything exist? The purpose, the goal is the glory of God. The glory of God is the trajectory of everything. Friends, this is non-negotiable. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to culmination, all things are working together as a display of God's full and infinite glory. In other words, everything is ultimately a display of the godness of God. Everything. Are you going to work for that or against that? Are you going to be in that or out of that? Are you going to line up with that or try to get him to line up with you? You have better plans? You have a better trajectory? You have better goals? God bless this, bless this, bless this, or do you want to be a blessing to God? Let me just almost in like machine gun fashion fire off some verses sort of quickly to hear this theme of the glory of God in the Bible. For example, why did God create us? Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. I'll say to the north, give them up and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. What about the death of Jesus on the cross? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, listen to Jesus hours before he died on the cross. John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour, the hour of his death on the cross. And what does he pray? Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Why did God save Israel? That's got to be about Israel and not God, right? Psalm 106, verse 8. Yet he saved them for his name's sake 
to make his mighty power known. Why did he save us? Ephesians 1, 5 and 6. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Everything, everything is displaying how good God is, how just God is, how merciful God is, how great God is. Everything. What about his, his warm careful shepherding of his flock. Think of the Lord's Prayer, Psalm 23, 3. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness. Why? What are the next words? For his name's sake. It is all about God. When he returns one day, whenever that is, he will return in a spectacle and 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 tells us why. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And on and on and on. It all exists for the glory of God. You and I exist. Why am I here? You and I exist for the glory of God. And so we're told, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Isaiah 26.8 says, In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and your remembrance are the desires of our soul. Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And 1 Peter 4.11, Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in Order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. This theme is more pervasive than any other theme in Scripture. The glory of God is the end of all things. God has created a universe and he has created a people to marvel at him. To worship him. To praise him. And every single one of you, every single one of you, you see this in your life. You, from childhood, you worship things. You praise things. You love to admire things. You love to admire people. You love to be lost in the admiration of others. You were built to admire God. There's no one like Him. You were built to worship God. You were built to commit every moment of your life to His glory. And friends, you will not be satisfied until then. And everything else is cheap and fleeting and does not compare. In conclusion, 
We learn a lot, don't we, listening to someone pray. You'd learn a lot about me listening to me pray, and I'd learn a lot about you listening to you pray. We learn a lot about Paul listening to Paul pray. We learn what's important to someone, don't we? We learn what's important to someone. What do they pray for over and over again? I love listening to the prayers of children. I love listening to the prayers of children. They want to have a good day. They're so thankful for a day. Every kid, right? It's beautiful. Thank you for this day. Help us to have a good day. What a pure, delightful prayer. You find out what concerns somebody. You find out what their desires are. You find out how thankful they are, or you find out how unthankful they are. You find out what their priorities are. You find out what really matters. You find out what people believe about God when you listen to them pray. We've just listened to Paul pray. And I said at the beginning, we should, now that we understand his prayer, examine our hearts in light of his. What do you find? What are you praying for? What is important to you? Do your prayers sound like this? I'm sure Paul also prayed for the day-to-day things. I'm sure at some point he had a grandma with a sore toe, and he prayed that her toe would feel better. But Paul had big things on his mind. He had deep and spiritual concerns. What do you pray for? What are you concerned about? Do you pray for your spouse this way? Do you pray for your children this way? Do you pray for your friends this way? Do you pray for your church this way? Oh God, I pray that their love would increase, that their knowledge of you would increase, that their discernment would increase, God. I pray that they would be more sincere and blameless on the day they meet you. I pray that you would fill them with the fruit of righteousness. God, I pray that you would be glorified in them. Do we pray for God's glory? Do we pray for abounding love? Do we pray for increasing knowledge, increasing discernment? Do we pray for sincerity in life? Do we pray for a blameless life? Do we pray for the fruit of righteousness? And ultimately, do we pray for the praise and the glory of God? Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, we pray that our love for you would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. And God, we pray that this would result in sincerity, that it would result in us being blameless before you and others, that we would be good and a blessing to those around us. God, we ask that you would, through Jesus Christ, fill us 
with this fruit of righteousness. And we pray, God, for all this, of course, for our good, but ultimately, God, our heart is your praise and your glory now and forever. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.